about that particular song is it is a song that where I'm telling myself, I'm telling my soul what to do, 
because sometimes my emotions lead me astray. We're emotional beings and truth be told, like songs should move us. This is how the Lord made music and, and souls to, to connect. Music should move us and move our emotions. But I think we have to be careful of what we're singing, both here and outside of, of this place. And I feel the weight of that, right? And I, because I think it's important that we, we keep in mind that our songs are telling our emotions what to do and not the other way around. And that we don't just sing a song that makes us feel good that's maybe loaded with, with some not truth, right? And so it's, it's okay and it's right that our songs move and rise and fall with dynamics. And that's, I mean, the Lord made music and the Bible is full of, of music. This is, this is good and right, but may we not forget that our songs here are telling our souls to bless the Lord. They're telling our souls, yeah, maybe there is this fire that you're standing in, but bless the Lord, oh my soul. I think that's all. So let's sing this together.
morning, one of our little ones got up. They come into our bedroom, and first words out of their mouth, it's not good morning, or how are you, mom and dad? It's, I'm hungry. I want something to drink. I need breakfast. Of course, our response is, you need to start getting ready. I wonder if so often when we go to God in prayer, that's the first words we have for him. God, I'm hungry. God, I'm thirsty. God, I need. And his response is similar to what ours was. We need to get ready. Get ready. What does getting ready mean? What does that look like? And in Psalm chapter 33, verse 9, we read, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. As we go to prayer this morning, might we begin by getting ready, by letting God speak first. And as he speaks to us, he always gives us opportunity to engage with him in conversation. Gives us time to share those things that we need or or want or think that we need and want. As long as we give him the opportunity to respond, to begin the conversation. Let's pray together as we begin. We get ready today to experience his presence and hear his voice. Lord, we laugh at that image. But Lord, I'm guilty. So often, Father, that's how I come to you. With my list, with the things that I think that I need, with, with my, my concerns and burdens. And, and Lord, in your grace and, and, and uh, the unmeasurable love that, that you have, that you are, Lord, you, you receive those things. You hear them. You, you know about them already. They're not a surprise to you. But God, what might my time with you look like? How powerful, Lord, might our prayers become? If instead we would start by listening, by getting ready, by recognizing whose presence that we're entering into, by acknowledging who we're inviting, Lord, to, who we're invited to share life with, Father, in those moments. The Father, we come this morning. We haven't already. We want to get ready. We want to hear your voice today. We want to feel your presence. Lord, we're not afraid this morning of conviction. I want your spirit, Father, to fill this place. As we read about in Acts chapter 2, to to overflowing. We want you to move. We don't want this to be an ordinary Sunday. There should be no ordinary Sundays, Father, when we gather in your house. We've come, Father, ready. We're primed. God move, speak, whisper, whatever you need to do, Lord, we want to acknowledge and recognize you today. Undoubtedly, Father, we we come as broken people, We, we come flawed, we come weary and tired. Lord, there are so many in this place that need you this morning to lift them up with that mighty right hand. I pray for those that are grieving, Lord. You, you know who they are. That we've, we've had families experience loss in recent days. And Lord, what, that, that loss is still raw. It's fresh. And, and they need comforted, Lord. So do it. We don't have to ask you to do it. You want to do it. For those, Lord, who are still struggling with grief, that maybe it's, it's been a long time and they're just wondering, when's it going to get easier? And Lord, maybe it doesn't get easier. But you can help us through it. You can use it. Do it. Lord, that are sick or or received a diagnosis that's unsettling or that's scary or that's uncertain, Father, would you touch them today? Remind them, Father, you're the great physician. 
you're at work among us. You've, you've brought us through so many of these situations before. God, today, would you just lift up those who need encouraged? For the lonely, Lord, for the depressed, for, for those who feel like they're, they're by themselves and no one understands, Lord, would you draw them near and let them know that you know, you care, you are with them. For the ones who have drifted from you, let the things of this world become a priority or become a focus. As we read, Father, the story of the prodigal, you wait anxiously, Lord, for us to return. Lord, when you see us coming, you run to us. Help us to see that, to own that imagery today that you are our Heavenly Father that is ready to run back, to embrace, to forgive, to restore. I don't know what it is you're up to today, but I just sense a special spirit in this place this morning. Have your way among us. Word of God, speak to us. When the opportunity comes, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that if there's something that we need to do, we would respond with, with, without fear. May, may there be this moment in our life where there's we recognize there's nothing else we can do except say yes, or perhaps we need to say no to something. But Lord, when we come to the point today where we have to make a decision, maybe not turn away from you. Instead, God, turn towards you. Speak, Lord. Create something new in us today. Add to our story. Because Lord, at the end of the day, our stories are all your story. We want to point people back to you. Last week, we began a conversation where we invited God to begin or to continue molding and shaping us, to empty us out of ourselves so to create room for what he wants to do. It's uncomfortable, this, this conversation about spiritual formation puts us in an awkward place. But today, it's going to get a little bit, maybe even more awkward. We're going to get a little vulnerable, a little transparent this morning. To help us set the table, I've asked Tammy Jacobs to come and share our connection moment. Good morning, church. Um, I wanted to begin today just by telling you guys a little bit of background about my life and um, the things that I've lived through and the great things that God has done and how he has provided me with so many wonderful friendships and family members that have encouraged me along the way. I um, grew up in a little town in Union County, Ohio called Marysville. Now, I'm sure none of you know where that is, but um, I had a great childhood. I was the third in line of four children, um, two older brothers and one younger brother. I'm the only girl. So got my way with everything. It was great. <laughs> um, <clears throat> as I was growing up, uh, we had a great, great childhood. Our parents were both Christians. Uh, my mom um, had been a Christian since a very early age of life, and my dad, after he met my mom, gave his heart to the Lord because he wasn't going to get her without doing that. <laughs> um, we were raised morally sound. Um, we were raised to work, to earn money, to, to make our way in the world. We were taught, you go to church when the church doors are open. 
it wasn't just Sunday morning. It was Sunday morning and Sunday night and Tuesday night youth group and Wednesday night prayer service and revivals. I don't even know how many times a year. But if the church doors were open, we went. Reading the Bible and prayer was common in our house. Um, I can remember a couple times my older brothers, when I was very little, would be convicted about something, and it was nothing for our mom to just set everything aside and take time to pray with them and to uh, commune with them and offer them spiritual guidance. We were disciplined. We didn't have much, but we didn't know it. We thought we were wealthy. We always went on nice vacations. God provided good. Life was good growing up. I, we experienced deaths and marriages and all types of things like that, like most children do in their lifetime. Um, my mom had a sister and her husband and her daughter um, were tragically killed in a car accident. A drunk, drunk driver hit them. So our family knows pain. And I have a cousin <clears throat> whose wife and his little girl burned up in a house fire. Again, we know our family knows pain. Um, went to college, Circleville Bible College it was at that time. Now it's Ohio Christian University. Um, studied there for a couple of years. And it was there that I learned Jesus required my whole life. Not just a part of me, not just a piece of me, not just Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but all through the week. And it was there that by a campfire, I gave my, not only gave my heart to the Lord, but he sanctified me and he made me whole through him. Way back in the 1980s, I married a tall, slender young man that I had met in high school. And uh, we were, were blessed to have three children. In the early 90s, we made Christ first and foremost in our lives, Rick and I did. And we have raised our children to the best of our ability, knowing the ways of the Lord. We were one of the first couples I know to start an in-home ministry called a small group at that point in time. Back in the early 90s, that was kind of unheard of. But we started one in our home, and we have had several um, home studies in our, our uh, family, and we think that that's an important part. In, in about 1985, um, we had our youngest daughter, or our oldest daughter, Holly, and my mom got sick. I had won a trip to Acapulco, and Rick was not able to go with me, so I invited my mom to come with me. And she got sick. She was very sick. She had, she had colon cancer. And over the next seven years, I watched my mom go from an exuberant woman to a 70 or 80 pound lady lying in a bed, and it was very difficult. I had a couple of children during that time. Um, Mom went through lots of chemotherapy. Rick and I were living in Atlanta. We moved back so that I could help take care of her. And um, as a family, to watch what that disease does is very difficult. But the one sure thing, the, ground, the grounds that my parents had blessed me with and had introduced me to was I knew who Jesus was. And I knew I could go to him. I knew that, I, that he would carry me through, through no matter what happened. 
Um, my mom's testimony was strong. She, she required much of us children. Um, one of my brothers is here today, Doug. I don't know if how many of you know it, but my, Doug Daniels is my brother. And I know a lot of people don't make that connection. But our mom just taught us that you love God. We didn't really have an option, even if we didn't love him right at that moment. We loved him. <laughs> um, uh, later on in life, when our daughter Sarah, our middle daughter, was about eight years old, um, she was playing at the playground behind our house um, at the school, and I heard this blood-curling cry, and I was cleaning a window upstairs, and I looked out, and there's blood gushing everywhere, and she's holding her arm up like this, nurturing it like a child, like a baby. Sarah had fallen off of a sliding board and had a compound fracture. Later on, we learned that her arm was just holding on by one main artery, one. At the hospital, they told us she was gonna lose her arm, and I can remember literally falling in the chair and just praying, God, I don't want this for my child. I know I'm undeserving, but whatever it takes, please spare my baby's arm. They life flighted her to children's, and within minutes she was in surgery, and she's sitting back there with two arms. <laughs> um, our son, when he was a sophomore in high school, he had this problem, Brian Nurick can attest to this, but his kneecap kept falling off the side of his leg. Any kind of little exercise or strenuous activity, his kneecap would fall off. We found out that it wasn't a problem with his kneecap, but that it was a problem with his hip and his knee and his foot were not aligned properly. So we took him to a specialist and the specialist said, yeah, I can fix this, but I need to put you in physical therapy for a while. So he went for three months physical therapy, took him back to the doctor on a Friday, and the doctor said, I took him in, and he's like, you've got that quad all built up good. He said, Chris, I'm gonna do surgery on Monday. And I looked at him, and I said, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm gonna cut his leg off just below his knee, and I'm gonna twist those bones, and I'm gonna screw them all back together and it's gonna be a long haul, but I'm gonna save your son's leg. And he did that, and 18 months later, my son was finally walking. It was excruciating during that time. I was afraid he would get addicted to painkillers. I was afraid of so many things, but the God that I served was faithful, and he walked with me through that trial. And I think, um, the last, the last major difficulty that I have experienced in my life is one that just takes your breath away. My daughter, uh, Sarah, and Thad Hicks, um, she had some problems with infertility early in their marriage and lost some children and the grief of that alone is, for those of you who've experienced it, is terrible. But they finally got pregnant, and it was like a great pregnancy. Everything went well, and she got to about 25 and a half, 26 weeks. And I got a phone call from her one day while she was at school, and she said, Mom, something's not right. 
And I said, well, what's wrong? She goes, I don't know. She told me the details of what she was experiencing. And she was supposed to, she and Thad were supposed to go out to dinner in Springfield with friends that night. And I said, Sarah, don't go. Stay home, put your feet up, call your doctor. She calls me back in about an hour and she goes, you know, I think I'm going to go. I think we're going to go. I said, okay. I hung the phone up and I prayed. I was like, Lord, take care of my baby girl. She needs you today. I don't know what's going on with her body, but take care of those twins that she's carrying. Lord, bless them. Give them a good life. Provide a way for them. Got in the next phone call I got was from June, and Sarah and Thad were on their way to the hospital from Springfield to OSU, and Sarah was in labor at 20, 25 and a half, 26 weeks. I can't tell you how I felt. I don't even know the emotions that they were experiencing, but I felt... I've never felt like that. I was so sick that I just, I couldn't even believe it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if those babies are born, they're going to be a pound or two pounds, and they're not going to make it. But God was there, and he reassured me. And he was like, Tammy, get your stuff together. Get to the hospital. You're needed. So I went to the hospital, and to make a long story short, Oliver and Otto were born. One of the boys was one pound 11, and one of them was one pound 12. They were the most precious human beings I've ever seen in my life. But God's plan was not for them to live on this earth. And at four days, Oliver passed away. And I will never forget, I will never forget at the moment he passed away, I was standing beside Lori Hicks in the hallway and I raised my hand just over my shoulder because it's all the more I could get it up. And I said, Lord, come what may, I will praise you in this storm. And the Lord stood there beside me and he wrapped his arms around me. And he assured me, we're going to get through this. We still had the hopes of Otto. And Otto lived for 14 days. And I can remember this church standing behind us. There were meals brought wonderful gifts, money, anything you could ask for. Church people were there. Our pastor was wonderful. He and his wife were there continuously with us. And I can remember on the prayer chain, it would be as simple as, Otto needs to pee today. We need pee. <laughs> simple things like that, because we, that's what we needed. But God didn't sustain Otto's life either. In 14 days, he passed away. And I watched my son-in-law and my daughter through everything turn to God. They kept, they stayed focused and God provided grace for them and grace for our family. It's a hard thing to go through. It's a chilling thing to think of. And deep down in my soul, where only me and Jesus abide, 
there's a place for two little tiny sets of footprints. And I know that someday, come what may, in the sweet by and by, what a day that will be. How do you move on from testimony and story like that? Thanking God and his faithfulness. Acknowledging who he is. Continue our conversation we started. We began 2 Corinthians last week where Paul writes, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is his spirit. We are transformed through these moments in life, the, the good moments and even the difficult moments. And if we're honest, it's often the difficult moments that change us most deeply, most profoundly. They hurt. They're hard. But God uses those moments to shape us, mold us into the image of Christ, into the image of God. It's something that we're always becoming, that he's always working on and doing. He's, he's kind of fine-tuning and tweaking. And as we become the image of God, becoming Christ-like, this journey helps us also to discover who God is, but also who he has created us to be. Consequently, part of this process is him revealing to us the purpose for which we've been created. And it's those moments that hurt that often where God shows up and reveals to us who he'd have us be, what he would have us do for him. This search for our identity in him, uh, the shaping, it has to happen from the inside out, as we talked about and saw last week in the form of pottery. God sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house where Jeremiah sees the potter reach in and pull the clay from the inside and push it out and then pull it up so he can shape. He empties us of us. So then he could put a new song in our mouths, fill us more and more of him. We began this, this conversation by presenting ourselves to him as moldable clay. The Spirit worked among us last week, and I believe he's still working among us today. We begin by submitting our hands to the potter. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. We'll hear this verse each week during this conversation. Yet you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. If you have kids and you, you have Play-Doh in your home and you leave that Play-Doh out overnight, it gets to where it, it dries out. It gets to where you can't use it anymore. It gets to where you can't mold it any longer. And that gets thrown away. But, but we're clay that God is still using. Still being molded and shaped on the wheel. But wet clay on the wheel is not yet ready to be used. There's still steps, important steps necessary steps that we have to go through in order for us to be able to bring God ever increasing glory. Once clay is shaped on the wheel, it's then removed from the wheel. And then it's, it's finished, if you will. It's air dried or leather dried. It's set up on a shelf to dry. And then and once it gets to where it's, it's air dried, it's a very slow process. It doesn't happen very quickly. But, but this, this drying then prepares the clay, the vessel that's been created to be fired. There's two stages to firing. First stage is called bisque firing. It, it, it occurs between 1700 and 1800 degrees. 82 degrees, 82 degrees today. It might be hot for some. Imagine 1700 to 1800 degrees. 
Just for your information, water boils at 212 degrees. It gets really hot in a kiln. A fire that, that, that then dries or biscuit dries clay, it's hot. And well, what happens in this process is, is chemically, uh, the, the, the clay begins to turn partly into rock. It gets to the point at that temperature where there's no chemically bonded water left in the clay. There's still a little bit of moisture, but not a whole lot. And the bisque pottery is what many of us may see or know as ceramic. You ever been to a, a craft store where you see ceramics that's unpainted? That's been bisque fired. It's still slightly porous so that when you dip it in glaze or when you paint it, there's something for, for the paint or the glaze to kind of grab onto. But it's not yet finished. The bisque firing's low enough that the vessel can still absorb a little bit. And the porosity is needed so that the glaze could stick. Uh, kind, of, kind of look at uh, the glazing as kind of a ceiling. We'll talk about the ceiling next Sunday. But in Daniel chapter 1, I want to kind of share a story where, where there's a firing that, that occurs. And, and I won't get really deep into Daniel chapter 1, but I want to kind of set the table a little bit. Uh, there's another series I do on, on exile that will really dig into Daniel much, much more significantly. But in Daniel chapter 1, we, we read about uh, Daniel and three of his friends getting taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God has been telling Israel for years, for generations, that if you don't turn and follow me, you're going to go into exile. And now it finally begins to happen in Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel and his friends, that they get taken from their home in Israel to Babylon. Now his friends are, that they have Jewish names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But once they get to Babylon, they're given new names. They're new names you may be more familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel and his friends, they're very quickly put to the test. They're given this Babylonian food, and it goes contrary to what their dietary structure and practice had been. And they kind of refuse it. And they put the cook to the test, because he's worried about losing his job, because if he doesn't take care of, his, of these new young men that they brought into Babylon, then he's going to get in trouble. But they eat kind of this Daniel food, if you will, lettuce and you know, vegetables and fruit and good stuff. The scripture tells us they were healthier than the others. They begin to, to earn the trust of those who have taken them captive. And, and, and God begins to bless them and put them in positions of authority where, where, where they can continue to serve and be a blessing to Babylon. Hold on to that thought. We'll talk about that in the years to come. Being a blessing to the Babylon which we find ourselves even today. But we read in, in, in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has this dream that's, that troubles him, and it's this image of, of, of a, this statue, and no one can interpret what the dream means. And, and Nebuchadnezzar gets upset, and he tells his advisors, if you can't tell me what this means, you're going to get cut into pieces, and your homes are going to be destroyed. Now, this is a king who's really upset about this dream he's had, and no one can tell him what's going to come of it. So his aides turn to Daniel, who prays, and God gives him this uh, the explanation of the dream. And it's this dream of the coming kingdoms. And, and each kingdom is going to be stronger than the next. And at the top is you know, all of, of, of what's to come. And everybody's all excited about this dream because he's part of the dream. And, well, my kingdom has come to be. So he decides to build a statue 90 feet tall, uh, uh, symbolic of this image that he's had in his picture. It's symbolic of himself. So we read in Daniel chapter 3 this creation of, the, of this golden image. 90 feet tall, about nine stories tall, taller than the grain silo downtown, how big Nebuchadnezzar's statue was. Now, to make a statue this big, 
Uh, you didn't do a lot of, you did a lot much of it on site. So there was this furnace that was built on site. Now, this wasn't necessarily solid wood, it might have been, but, but most people, they're pretty smart. They, they kind of formed the statue and they coat it with gold. But regardless of what it was built with, be it really with bricks or be it with, with clay, or even when they got to the point where they had to melt the gold, it required a hot furnace to be utilized. And once it was done, uh, we still had the furnace nearby. Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to come around to bow down to his statue when they heard the music play. When they heard the music play, everyone was to stop what they were doing and bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. In the crowd that day were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know where Daniel was at this point, probably off doing some other uh, Nebuchadnezzar-like duty somewhere else, but he wasn't here, or otherwise he would have been part of what these three young men participated in. The music played, and they just stood there. Everyone around them bowed down. They just stood there. They kind of looked at each other, we're not going to do it. And, and, and as Nebuchadnezzar is looking around as he's given a command, as he's kind of relishing in the worship that everyone's given to him, he hears whispers. Verse 12 of chapter 3. But there's some Jews whom you've put in a position of authority who pay no attention to you. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar gets a little upset. Scripture tells us he's furious with rage, almost uncontrollable. And he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. They come before the king. He says, did you not understand the instructions that I've given you? You didn't understand? I'll excuse that. But when it happens again, I want you to bow down. And if you bow down, I'll, I'll just ignore what just happened. And Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We're thrown into the blazing furnace. The God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. We, we love that part, don't we? God's there with us. He, he'll protect us. He'll, he'll keep us safe from the fiery furnace. And we stop right there. And if we stop right there, we miss something incredibly important in our spiritual lives. Because verse 18 says, but even if he does not, we want you to know we will not bow down. It's even if he does not, that we have difficulty with as Christians. It's even if he does not, that we struggle with in our faith walk. Because we, we want the God, we want, to, we want to believe that God is going to save us because we know that he's able, we know it. If he's able, then why wouldn't he do it? And that's the part that we can't always make sense of because we don't know the answer to that. Except to know that if we always avoid the furnace moments in our lives, we'll never become who he's created us to be church today, I want to invite us to at least consider being open to the even if he does not moments in our lives. Hurt. They're hard. Painful. We can't always explain them. Nebuchadnezzar in this moment, he gets really mad. And he commands those that are in charge to, to fire up the furnace, but not just a normal firing, to seven times hotter than normal. And whether they're firing clay or whether they're melting gold, just so you know, gold melts at 1,950 degrees. He wants it seven times hotter. He's going to show these guys who's really in control and who's in charge. It gets so hot. He has Shadrach, Meshach bound up, and he has his strongest soldiers grab them take them to the mouth of the furnace and throw them in. It's so hot, the soldiers die. Kind of like spontaneously combusted. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if they 
My clothes caught on fire. I don't know. But it's hot. And if, if you do the math, we're, we're talking a 10,000 degrees. I don't even know how possible that is. But he's got this thing that is burning. It is glowing. The crowd is watching. He's making an example of these three. No one else is going to do what they're about to do. No one else is going to not listen to what I say. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate to those watching. And what we find in this process is reminiscent to the second firing that occurs when you're making pottery. It's the second firing, the temperatures get turned up a little bit. Once the bisque firing is complete, the next step is called glazing. And the glazing is like a sealing of sorts. Without the glazing, uh, the clay or the ceramic, if you dip it in water and you soak it long enough, eventually it will turn back into mud. So the bisque firing, while it's important, it's not final. But after it's glazed, once you turn the temperature up a little bit, then it's finished. And God sometimes has to turn the temperature up or allow the temperature in our lives to be turned up so that we could be finished, useful, continuing to be created so that he can do something with us. In this second firing, all the moisture is removed. There is no moisture left. And the vessel essentially turns into a rock. And the glazing, typically, it's a form of glass. So the temperature is so hot, the glass melts and it kind of coats the, the product, so you, the shiny part that you see on the vessels that I've made, that's because it, it's glass. That glazing melts and it kind of coats and it kind of makes it useful. Remember we talked last week, though, about being clay that's been prepared. There's a process when you're spinning or when, when, when a plate is being molded and shaped. Uh, on the bottom, on the base, you're supposed to kind of spend a lot of time kind of going back and forth, just kind of stroking it. If you look closely on the spine, you'll kind of see a spiral. That spiral is not a good thing. Uh, but but uh, if you do it enough, you can still have the spiral it's not impacted. But if you're not careful as you're shaping, as you're molding, what happens is if you don't get the clay fibers aligned just right, when you start to turn up the temperature, if you haven't worked out all the air bubbles, and you start to turn up the temperature, if you haven't got all the moisture kind of where it's supposed to be, and you turn up the temperature, something begins to happen. You ever had popcorn? Temperature gets turned up. The moisture in the air, that's what happens. If you're not careful and get everything aligned, when you put your bowl into the fire, you end up with a crack. It's devastating to have created something and then pull it out of the furnace and it's cracked. Now, this isn't what Kim made for us last week. Uh, we have much, something much better to show you because we had a pottery failure. There was clay that we used that wasn't really fully prepared, and when it was put into the kiln... What came out was pieces, broken pieces. Parts of what you can see used to be a bowl. What this tells us is there was air pockets in there. There was clay that wasn't quite aligned. It wasn't quite right. So many of us, <laughs> this is our lives, isn't it? Life's gotten hot, and before we know it, pop. We've had big dreams, we've had plans, we've had this image of what life was going to look like. Things got hot, and pop. And we're left with pieces. And we're like, Lord, what do I do with these? God, how do I move forward? God, do you hear me? What do you do with this? And I don't know how God does it, 
But even in these moments, he takes the pieces and he joins us in the fire and does something that only he can do. Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. (laughs) King Nebuchadnezzar, as he's thrown the three men in, leaps to his feet in amazement and he asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Just making sure, guys. His advisors, well, it was sure, certainly there were only three. He says in verse 25, look, I see four. I see four men walking around the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. He was partially right. Son of God. Whether you were at whatever fire you find yourself in this morning, church, know that there's always one more in there with you. Always. I get excited when I read the Bible and I find something new and something familiar. And that happened to me this week as I was reading Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Look, I see, Nebuchadnezzar says. Look, I see. And there's so many times in our lives when we don't know what God is doing and he throws us and he allows us to be thrown into the furnace so that others who don't believe could see. So that others who don't know who God is could look. And to see something they would, they would never otherwise be open to seeing. And in this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not knowing what God was going to do, allowed themselves to be thrown into the fire so Nebuchadnezzar could see. It's necessary for all of us. I didn't have the word all of us when I first wrote this message, but the more I've, I've, I've wrestled with it this week, fire is necessary for all of us. For the unbelieving to see in us who God is and the difference he can make and does make in our lives. Fire and heat transform. We are transformed for God's ever-increasing glory. How are we transformed? It's often painful. It's uncomfortable. But it's necessary. God does some amazing things through furnace moments in our lives. So we often miss out on glorifying God, though, with our lives. Because we can't take the heat. We, we kind of give in to the crowd. We bow down when the music plays. We don't even get close to the flames because we know what could happen. Or, or when we find ourselves in the midst of it, how do we pray? God, take this away from us. God, remove us from this. Take us out of it. What church would happen in our lives? This is hard. This is bold. But what if we would pray even if you don't? What might he do? What would it take for us to become a faith family that prays, Lord, even if you don't? Hard. If you've ever worked out or lifted weights, you know that in order to get stronger, you have to pick up something heavy. You have to pick up something that you're uncomfortable. You have to go through something challenging. As long as we only lift what we can handle, we'll never be all that God wants us to be. If we're only willing to go through the things that are comfortable for us, he's never able to shape us or to prepare us. I want to jump to 1 Corinthians, and I know we're tight on time, but, but this is important, and I want God to have the room that he needs to, to work in us today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uses this uh, imagery of a race, and he's talking about uh, how everyone, uh, well, not everyone, uh, but the, he says, do, not, do we not know that all in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Paul says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Verse 25, everyone who competes, in the games, goes into strict training. Everyone who competes. There's an implication here. 
Paul's telling us is that not everyone competes. Some choose not to enter the race. Some choose not to even bother with the training because it's too hard. It hurts too much or it's too painful. If you've ever been a runner, if you've ever ran kind of a long distance, you you know that as you run, and when you switch early on, you get this stitch in your side. That stitch hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And we're given pain for a reason. We experience pain so we know that something's not right, and we're sometimes we're supposed to quit. But when you're a runner, you know that you've learned that you've got to run through the pain, and eventually the stitch goes away. But for most, let's be honest, we're not runners for a reason. We quit. The pain stops us. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to go any further. Now, those who are good runners, who enjoy running, understand that you have to push through the burn. For me, when I, when I was running, I, and I, I did a couple miles yesterday, I felt pretty good about myself until how long it took me. <laughs> there was a point where it took about four miles before that burn would go away, and I would kind of you, you can feel it. Your body kind of enters this new mode where you, you can breathe easier, and your, your heart's kind of flowing at a, at a, at a good rate. And, and it's, it's, it's strange if you've never experienced it, but it does happen. And you're able to go further than you ever thought that you could. But most of us never get there. Because we can't deal with the discomfort and the pain. We quit. We fall short. And we we never understand. Paul's talking about everybody who competes. He's speaking this idea that we need to get into the race. There's a powerful word that's used in in the original Greek text. And the word that the Greeks use for compete is agonizomai. Let me say that with me. Agonizomai. Say it with me. Agonizomai. So now you can speak Greek. At least one word. And it's the word that we get in our language, the root word for agony. He's equating competing with pain. Paul's telling you, if you're going to run the race, you're going to experience pain. It's going to happen. And in a sense, Paul says that the Christian life will have agony. Your marriages, whether Christian or not, they're going to have challenges. Your job, you're going to have challenges in your job as a parent. You're going to have challenges. It's going to happen. What happens in the midst of those pain and the problems and the trials and the tumbles? How do we respond? In our humanity, we say we don't want pain in our life. But each of us know that's not real. And by choosing to compete, by choosing to run, we're choosing to live. And we're choosing a life that will have agony. And in so doing, we're choosing the furnace. Using the fire. And church, if we want to get stronger, we have to pick up something heavy. As long as we only lift what what we we can lift on our own, we're never going to get stronger. And we will never learn what it truly means to depend upon God if we just go through life wanting the experiences that we can handle on our own. What are you picking up today? Illness? Weariness? Joblessness? Penniless? Broken relationships? Confusion? Depression? What is it that you're trying to carry? Or maybe that you've dropped or let go of? When you get to the point where you can't lift anymore, where you can't take another step, where the fire is too hot and the, the burn is too painful, remember, church, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Take one more step. This greater God that we serve turns pain into promise and agony into achievement, and failures into faith. Paul reminds us that life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Actually, 12 years ago yesterday, 
I had went into training, watched a TV show, and then saw some others that were in worse shape than me running a marathon. I thought to myself, I can do that. They can do it. I can do it. I started to train for a marathon. And in 2010, this very weekend, I, I ran the, the Air Force Marathon in Dayton. Well, let me back up. I finished the Air Force Marathon in Dayton. I didn't run the marathon in Dayton. You ever had those moments where on your living room couch something sounds like a great idea? And you get into the midst of it and you think, what was I thinking? Got to a long story short, I got to miles 18 and 19 in this race, and I hadn't ever run that far before in my life. So I wasn't training well, as you can kind of see. And I hit a wall, and my body was screaming, Are you kidding me? Are you serious? This hurts. There was muscles twitching I didn't know I had. My, my legs were doing things that were that's still weird to this day. And it was agony. I wanted to stop so bad at a stretch. And they tell you, don't ever stop, because the moment you stop, your legs start to contract. And it was happening whether I was stopping or not, because I kept getting slower and slower. And eventually, I found myself running on my tiptoes, and it, it, was, it hurt. I had a choice to make. Every couple of my, every, you'd see these golf carts, they'd pick you up and take you back. They'd help you get back to where your car was. You, I could quit at any time. I had a friend who called me. I had my phone with me, and then I actually answered the phone about mile 20. He was supposed to run with me, and he got hurt and couldn't. Stinker. He says, how you doing? I said, it hurts. So I'll let you go. I said, no, no, I, I, need, I need you to help me. I need you to talk me through. And he became the one in the fire with me in that moment. And he got me to mile 23. I got okay, I think I can finish the rest of the race now. And I had to say he was right there with me, even though he wasn't with me. But I had to make the choice to keep running. I could have surrendered. I could have given up. I could have stopped. Still pretty impressive to run 20 miles. That, that, would, that could have made me feel good. But I wanted to finish. Church, we're going to hit walls in our lives, and we can choose, if we choose to be clay in the potter's hands, we're going to be exposed to fire. We have to be in order for God to finish in us what he started. If we're not fired, then God knows we're not going to be capable of being filled. We'll talk about being filled next week. We'll never be able to be poured out or be useful. In this wall-facing moment, these fiery furnace moments in our lives, they require us to lean upon grace, to answer the calls of those who want to come beside us. We need that fourth person in the fire with us. We can't do it on our own. We were never meant to. So why do we share our pain? Why do we share our stories? They hurt. I get it. We share them because there might be someone else in this church who needs what Tammy's been through. Maybe you've been dealing with an illness or you've lost someone. God's going to use you to walk beside someone else who might be going through something similar. God uses your pain, again, to bring ever-increasing glory to him. I know it hurts. I don't know all that you've been through, but I know God wants to use it. When we push through the walls in front of us, when we survive the furnace moments, we realize that it is God who meets us there, then we're able to finish well. And I desire for us as a church to be, to be built for marathons and not sprints. It's easy to do sprint-type ministry. I want marathon ministry. I want us to be fire walkers, furnace dwellers, be transformed for ever-increasing glory of God. I desire for us to push through walls, to walk into the flames, not foolishly, but confidently, knowing that Jesus will walk with us. 
I desire for us to be a church that will embrace the times of agony and pain and frustration and realize that in those moments, God is making us stronger. And as we push through, our good beginning will turn into a great finish. Go back to Daniel chapter 3, verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Imagine the story they had to tell. Still in captivity, but now promoted. And strangely, we don't know anything else about these three, but we know enough. They were met by Jesus in the fire. They didn't know what God would do. They didn't know that God would meet them there. They hoped that he would, I'm sure. But the scripture tells us they're willing to die to remain faithful to God. Even if he does not. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 9. I'm jumping back and forth. I'm getting where we're going to start to wrap this up. I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. There is a prize. There is a finish line. There's something waiting for us. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I'm not racing for a crown. I'm racing for his presence. That's all that I care about. I just want to be there. I finished that marathon in 2010. 26.2 miles. I won't tell you how long it took, but I finished. I have a medal to prove it. Yeah, and it's not gold, it's not silver, it's, it's, it's not bronze, it, it's actually, this medal says there were 1,545 other people that crossed the finish line before I did. <laughs> but it says I crossed the finish line. And it hurt. It hurt the next day. And it hurt Tuesday after the race was over. It hurt for a long time after I finished the race. And just because you finish doesn't mean that the pain's going to go away. But I have a story to tell. I've done something not many others have done. And I don't ever desire to do it again. <laughs> Although my son's talked me into a half marathon next spring, but I've got time to get ready for that. There will come a time where you're going to remember your furnace moment. You're going to remember that God met you there. And I pray that you're encouraged to keep your running shoes on Put on your fireproof suit and you keep pushing through so that God can finish in us what he started. As we close, Amy's going to come and we're going we're to give God time to talk to us again. Second service can wait. It helps them anticipate there's something exciting going on. They can't wait to get in here. We want to give the Lord just an opportunity. Church, will you run through or into the fire where Jesus is waiting on us? Take one more step, regardless of the outcome, come and walk with the Son of God. He's walked through the fire himself. The scars on his hands prove that to us. He's waiting. Maybe you're prepared clay and there's still some air bubbles that need to be worked out. Maybe you're shaped, but yet you still need to be emptied. As we close, I invite you to stand with me. And we're going to, again, have a time of just a prayer and open up our altars. And for those who might need to come to be fired today or find themselves in a fire this morning, you need to be reminded that you're not alone. But you're facing a moment that is scary and uncertain. 
know today that God is here waiting for you. Be transformed, church. Allow our pain to bring Him glory. Watch what He does. Father, there aren't easy conversations. They hurt. find ourselves perhaps with pieces today and those pieces kind of indicate on one hand failure somewhere in our life where we've fallen short but Lord on the other hand it's an opportunity for us to just give them back to you and ask you Lord will you do something anything with these pieces because I need more to my life than this I know in this room this morning there's some furnace moments that others are walking through right now I'd meet them there. There's some pain that others are experiencing right now. Run beside them, Lord. Encourage them, Father, to push through. Whether it be loss or whether it be inadequacies, whether it be discouragement, whether, Lord, it's just uh, just not knowing. There's so many things that we're wrestling with right now in this moment. pray, Father, you speak to us. God's talking to you or you're facing something you can't go through on your own. Our altar is open. It's a place where you can meet with the one who will walk beside you. Who will meet you there. As we worship, may you just continue to listen as God speaks. Respond accordingly. Grace when the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing When I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be Reckoning. Either way. 
sees even if he doesn't still i will praise even if he doesn't pieces, Lord. Do something beautiful with them. Walk with us. May we, Lord, be willing to continue to be transformed. Continue to add to your ever-increasing glory. In Jesus' name we pray today. Amen. God bless you. Go. Glorify God this week.